You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. When my son was a sophomore in high school, we did a pretty horrible thing to him. Uh, We moved him from Indiana, where he had lived most of his life, across the country to Seattle for one year. So for one year, he had to change high schools. Uh, We researched from long distance to try and find a community to live in, because I was going out there to go to grad school for a year. Looked for a community with a good high school, found one with highly rated high school. And when we moved out there, then we came to realize it was a very large high school, but it was also a high school located in Seattle's Tech Corridor, a very affluent area. And we were definitely on the lower rung of the social economic ladder in that community, which both those things, I think, made the transition a little harder for him. But it was also difficult because he's fairly quiet, somewhat shy, and we came to realize once we made that move, he was maybe even a little more shy than we realized. Uh, It was a difficult transition for him. And we'd been there for a few weeks, and it was pretty clear he was not enjoying his time there. Um, And one day I was on my way to class, and I noticed on the counter was the money that I had given him for his lunches during the week. And I thought, well, I'll take that money up to the school, drop it off the office, see if they can get it to him before his lunch comes. So when I drove up to the school, pull into the school, and I see my son sitting by himself at a picnic table just outside the school. So I walked up to him and asked him what he was doing out there. Uh, And he told me, it's lunchtime, so I'm I'm out here. And I said, well, why, why are you out here by yourself? He said, well, everybody in there has friends and knows each other and they have their set tables. So I just come out here every day to have my lunch by myself. Now, if you're a parent, you can probably imagine what that felt like in that moment. That broke my heart. And my first thought was, what did I do to my son by dragging him out here? Now, the good news is, as the year went on, he made good friends and did fine with the transition out there. But in that moment, I wanted to run into that school and start telling students, hey, that guy sitting out there, he is bright, he's fun, he's creative, he's kind. You would do well to befriend him. It would be a blessing to you. Go out and meet that guy. Now, I, of course, didn't do that, and my son would be horrified at the thought of me doing that. But nobody wants their child to to experience the kind of aloneness that you don't choose, right? The kind of aloneness you feel trapped in. Nobody wants that. Matter of fact, if we really think about it, we don't want it for anybody. The the kind of aloneness, sometimes we like aloneness, but the aloneness that is chosen for us, usually we don't. It's a hard experience, and that's because God created all of us to not be alone. Created us for deep relationship with other human beings. We were made for that, it's his design. Um, One of the things I find in scripture is God not only designed us to be connected to others, but as his people to be deeply connected, to literally be one. You find this oneness language in scripture. 
Probably nowhere do you find this described better than in John chapter 17. Now in John 17, this is Jesus' prayer right before his arrest. Um, and he's praying to his Father in heaven. And he's praying this, this kind of final prayer before all these events take place. In verse 11, and this is the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus in Scripture. But in verse 11, he prays, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them in everything that you are, your love, your power, your character. Keep them close to you. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That is a pretty remarkable request. Not just we would be one, we would be unified. We would be one as God the Father and God the Son are one. An incredible, deep, intimate connection that is truly for one another. A little later in verses 20 to 21, you read this. I do, not ask, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, for all who will come after them. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this isn't just any kind of unity that we're called to, that God gifts us with. This is a unity that's built in a shared life with our God, that we are all connected together through him. It is a deep unity, a oneness that we're actually called to. And it is a oneness, which is pretty remarkable in this prayer, that he says that oneness will be one of our most powerful tools to convince the world around us that God the Father sent his son and Jesus was that one. It will be one of our most powerful tools to proclaim the gospel to the world around us, this unique oneness that he has gifted us with. Again, a oneness that's built on him in relationship with him. And I think what's remarkable in this prayer is just before all these events that are about to take place, this torture and humiliation that Jesus will walk through on his way to the cross and then give his life on the cross for all of us, that all of us that he is doing that for, in this moment, his heart's desire for us is that we'd be one. That we, his people throughout history, will be connected in this circle of unity that connects us with God the Father, God the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, connected truly with each other so intimately we could be called one. It's a pretty remarkable thing that that's what he longs for for us. I also think it's interesting in scripture that when you find this language of oneness, uh, two places that you most find it, where God seems to have gifted us with this oneness, it's about marriage and it's about the church. It's where you often will hear that language. Now about marriage, we both, we all kind of know the story. In the creation narrative, God rescues Adam from his aloneness by creating Eve. And Eve was very much like him, more like him than any other creature he had created. Matter of fact, actually flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. She is like him. She's a fellow image bearer created to have dominion over, to rule over the other creatures that God had created along with Adam. Very much like him. Sameness was part of their unity. But she's also very different. And that difference was an important part of their unity also. This was a unity that came with difference, a oneness with difference. 
And we all, I think, would tend, most of us here would tend to agree that that difference, that male and female was part of God's design for marriage, and it's an important part that he affirms again and again through scripture. This unity with difference is a difference that's not meant to be distorted, not meant to be diluted, not meant to be divided. Unity with difference, that is the oneness God is calling us to. But then when you look at the church, you see the same thing. Again, you see unity with diversity, with difference. One of the places we see this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So listen in 1 Corinthians 12, begin in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Again, oneness. A oneness created by God, a gift from God. He's the one who originates it, who causes it to happen. He's the one who's designed it, and he's designed it with diversity. With difference is an important part of it. Here he talks about the fact that we're Jew and Greek, people from different cultural backgrounds, people who came out of various religious backgrounds, people living in different places. They're called to be one. Slave and free, people who came from different positions of power and opportunity in their society. People who are in many ways divided by the world. He now says in Christ, you've been made one. Through the Spirit, it's God's work in us to create this oneness. If you look in verses 11 and 18, you see again God's choice. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It's his work. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Again, this is God's work. It's intentional. Diversity with unity is the work of God. If you look in verses 4 through 7, a little earlier in that chapter, Paul writes this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And I love that. This diversity, each member of the Trinity mentioned, active in creating this connection with diversity. And it's being done for the common good. This is not done for the good of some. This is done for the good of all of us. This gift of diversity that we sometimes think it's some, it's some nice gift we offer to others to include them. This gift of diversity is for all of us. We are all better off when we know unity with diversity because it's God's design for us. But God also warns in this chapter that we're going to be tempted to divide, to kind of rank each other, to reorder what he has put together and intentionally designed according to the world standards. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see that, that they were doing that about spiritual gifts. In regards to spiritual gifts, God says, I put them all there intentionally. This design is mine. Every single piece, equal value, equal importance and purpose. But they started reordering according to the world standards, saying, well, some gifts are more important than other gifts. Some people are then more important than other people, according to the world standards. And if you look just a chapter before, in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, they were doing that according to where people, again, were socioeconomically. When they came together for the Lord's Supper, they were dividing 
kind of considering people important, more important or less important based on where they were economically in society, the power they had in society. Dividing, God put together, and then we, according to the world standards, pretty quickly start dividing. It's a common problem that he warns against. They were violating God's good and perfect design that was for the common good. And again, sometimes we think when we invite people in who are who our society says, our world says, they are less valuable or less important. We think when we do that, we're being hospitable. We're being kind to somebody else and generous with what we have. And there's some truth in that. But when we are receiving others who are children of God, who are Christ followers into our community, this isn't inviting a guest in to stay with us for a while. We are receiving family members. We are receiving people who just like us have just as much place in this community as we do, right? They belong just like us. We're receiving family members into the community that we share in Christ, not inviting them to be guests in our house. And we don't think of it that way a lot of times. And the reason we do that, again, for the common good. When we divide and diminish parts of what God has joined together, it actually hurts all of us. And we have this wonderful glimpse in scripture of looking ahead when Christ returns, what the church will look like. We're given this beautiful glimpse. James Talbert mentioned it a couple weeks ago in Revelation chapter seven, verses nine and 10. It says this, after, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is the church. This is the church when all things are made right, set perfectly, when Christ returns and with him brings shalom, brings perfect peace, sets everything as it should be. This is what the church will look like people of different races, different ethnicity, people all together, gathered together facing our good God, proclaiming the salvation that they share because of him. That's the church. We have a tendency to say, that's good. That's the church for the future. But if that is the good church, God's design for the church, it is good for us today, just like it will be then. We will do it imperfectly today. We will, we will never do this perfectly until Christ comes back. He's the only one who can do this. But this oneness of the people of God from different cultures, ethnicities, different places in the world, different languages, different skin color, different personalities, different ages, all these differences that come together, that's God's design. And that is a good design today just as much as it will be then. It's a good design for us to seek out. But the truth is, let's face it, uh, oneness is hard when it comes with difference and diversity, right? If it was easy, we'd all be doing it. Uh, it is hard. And the reason it's hard is I think when we try to deeply connect, to pursue and embrace this oneness that God has given us with people who seem very different than us, um, it generally means we have to surrender some control. Because any relationship 
requires two people to be actively involved in it. So if I'm going to have oneness with anybody else, whether it's my spouse in marriage or oneness with others in the church, I'm going to have to surrender some of my control because they have an equal part in it. And that's kind of scary. The other thing's kind of scary is I don't know what you're going to do with me. And rejection is kind of scary. And when we face those things that feel um, like they divide us, the things the world tells us should divide us, when we bump up against those things that feel like, boy, that's kind of uncomfortable for me, those are the moments it screams to us, this is not safe, get away from that. Uh, this is where you're going to have to give up some control because they're different than me. This is where you're going to have to give up um, some control because they would do things differently than I would do them. And I think that can be pretty scary. So I want to think with you for the rest of this sermon about maybe some just suggestions about how we move towards this diversity and unity. How we do it. If this is God's good design for us, but it's hard. It's kind of scary. What are some ways we might be able to do this? Uh, this is not an exhaustive list by any means. I just really want to stir some thought and conversation about it and hopefully some movement, some action towards being a people who look more like the church that one day will be. How do we actually pursue that? And that difference can be about a lot of different things, right, that are hard for us. Think about the differences in the church that are hard to be unified around. Differences like old and young, black and white, poor or wealthy, or blue collar or white collar, male or female, people with gifts that stand out that everyone recognizes, and people with gifts that maybe aren't often as valued in our world, that seem to be more behind the scenes. People who come from different ethnic backgrounds, how do we pursue oneness with all those differences that are us? In fact, you spend time with anybody here, you're going to start running into differences, right? How do we pursue unity with that kind of diversity? Well, here are a few suggestions. First, I'd say search God's word and pray. Now, this is going to sound like the right answer, the obvious answer, and it is. Because oneness, scripture clearly tells us, is something that God creates. He gives us. It originates in him. If we are going to be one as his church... One is his church around the world through the ages, one connected through Jesus Christ. If we're going to be that church, it's going to be something he's going to do in us and for us. So I think it begins with prayer. I would suggest that we should begin praying uh, that our thinking and our relationships would become more in line with his design. Change us so that we might begin individually and as a church honoring that good design embracing the good design and the oneness that he gives us. I also think we ought to search God's word because, one, we need reminders all the time that diversity really is a good thing. We need constant reminders of it. That this surrendering control sometimes, walking into where I could be rejected, that that's for good reason. God really does want good for all of us when he calls us to that. It's not, it's not something that I just do because I should. It's something I do because it really is good. It really is beautiful. We need those reminders from Scripture. And we need the reminders from Scripture that we're safe when we do it. That in Jesus Christ, we are chosen. We are loved. We are called. We are people that are secure in relationship with him. And because of that, we can take these risks for the sake of pursuing what he calls good.
even though the world around us may tell us otherwise. So search God's word and pray. Second thing I would say, and this maybe is a little harder to explain, is create a safe space for connection. I don't think connection is something you ever can force. You can't decide people will be one with you, be connected to you, because it involves the choices of people beyond me, right? It's something we all have to choose if we're going to find that kind of connection. We all have to submit to God's call and design for us if that's going to happen. But I do think one of the things we can do is we can create safe space for that to happen. And one of the ways we create safe space is honestly we be curious about one another. When you bump up against those differences that you immediately want to kind of pull back from, again, consider a little too risky, a little too difficult, be curious. Begin trying to look for and search for and ask for the story of the other. Because the more we know each other, the more we are always connected. And the more I seek to know somebody, the more they want to connect to me. One thing I've found over the years as a counselor is if I am sincerely curious about another story, if I honestly want to know their story, people generally want to tell their story. They really do. And the more I know their story, the more connection I feel with them and the more connection they feel with me. Knowing one another's story means we risk being vulnerable sometimes. Knowing one another's story means we be curious. We really search for their story. And I would say as we walk into story, one of the things that's important, as we walk into story, we're going to find all kinds of difference, right? Again, I don't care whether you're talking in marriage with your spouse or you're talking in the church with other believers. We're going to run into difference whenever we start really getting to know the other which to both of us, all of us, will feel a little threatening. Well, I think one of the things we can do to help people feel safe while we do that is we can also affirm where there is common ground. We can remind each other difference isn't the whole story here, right? You move towards relationship with any human being. You hear the story of any human being and you are going to find common ground. You are going to find things that connect us. And if we are people who share a relationship with Christ, we are absolutely going to find things that connect us deeply. We have to look for those things, draw attention to them. It's kind of like we're reminding each other, you know what, we're walking into difference. That's a little scary. But there's still these threads of sameness and connection. There's still easy places that we feel safe. And because of that, we can risk facing the differences between us. Uh, in a previous church, I oversaw the small groups in the church. And one of the things I used to regularly teach my small group leaders is when you get a group together that people don't know each other well, notice what they will do when they first get together if you don't know each other. You, you'll look for common ground everywhere you possibly can. I mean, even the most shallow of common ground, you'll, you'll grab onto it, right? Someone says, I used to live in Iowa. Hey, I've been to Iowa before. Yeah, lots of corn out there, you know? Really nice day. We jump on any sameness we can. Why? Because we feel safe. We feel a little more connected with it. So I used to tell small group leaders, help them. Do crowd breakers, discussions, things that help them find common ground. That's great. Want them to feel safe in this community. Want them to feel like this is a safe place to tell your story. But I will also tell my small group leaders that if you stay there, if all you do is kind of protect sameness, and say, you know what, that works, that connects us, so let's not let any difference in. Let's just have sameness. Your group will die. It absolutely will. Because the truth is you are different people. 
There are differences between you. And if the only way we can connect is through sameness and everything else is, is dangerous territory, eventually there's just too much work to maintain sameness with too little relational payoff. It's just not worth the time and effort if that's the only thing we have together. We are different people. We are different in some obvious ways. We are different in some less obvious ways. Get to know each other. We're going to have to deal with it. And real community is a community that says, you know what? We can be different and still be connected. Matter of fact, that is a richer and deeper connection when difference can exist and we are still trust each other, connected to each other. Other thing I would say is honor the story you're given. Sometimes say, well, I want to know more. That's all they'll give me. Well, you want to know more, honor the story you're given. Uh, which means if someone is willing to tell you part of their story, treat it as valuable. Listen to it. Care for it. Uh, the parts that are confidential, treat with confidentiality. Um, care about a story. Listen to a story with the goal of, I want to know your story well enough that, and reflect on it long enough that I could tell it back to you and I think it would be a story you'd agree with. I've listened to your story. I know your story. I've heard it. Um, listen to a story till you get to the point that you can feel with them in their story, that you can actually empathize, that you can celebrate the things worthy of celebration and you can mourn the things worthy of mourning. Don't just get this list of facts. Enter into the point that I actually can imagine what that felt like. I can be with you in it and care about it. Theologian Jonathan Worthington defines empathy as moving yourself into someone else's mental and emotional shoes to walk around from their perspective for a time. That's your goal. Be able to just simply imagine things from their perspective. Now, we're not saying that you have to set your perspective aside or set aside objective truth to empathize for somebody. That would be what we often call enmeshment. That's not a healthy thing. We're saying simply, I can picture from your perspective. I still may disagree with you on some things, but I've listened to you well enough and known you well enough that I can understand your perspective some and find a lot of common ground even where there's difference between us. Third thing, and this will again sound like saying the obvious, choose to embrace and learn from difference. Sometimes the way we have unity with diversity is we just flat ask ourselves the question, is this difference really something that has to be an obstacle to our connecting in our relationship? Now, I, I think of this often when I meet with couples, where they come to me because there's some difference between them and they basically are wanting me to be the judge who solves that difference, right? Who picks a side. I learned long ago that's probably not a helpful thing to do. Um, not that there aren't sometimes I say, no, that's I'd right. But rarely is that very helpful. Most of the time, what I actually find to be true is the thing that is a difference that, that they are fighting to find common ground sameness in. Most of the time, actually, what I find is you can move ahead with that difference. You actually don't have to be the same in this. This is not a, this is not a difference that threatens your ability to connect to one another and be one. Matter of fact, if you'd embrace that difference, you will probably have a richer and more meaningful oneness. Uh, there are differences that are just not problems. Now, I'm not saying embrace every difference, right? There's some differences, for instance, that are sin. And scripture says a lot about how we're to restore a brother or sister who's caught into sin, but that's another sermon. 
so I'm not saying that, but there are so many differences. This isn't an issue of sin. This isn't something that has to divide us. These are the things we can learn from, grow from, and be more because of. There are differences that when we seek unity with them, we serve the common good, all of us. When faced with difference, we're often tempted to demand sameness. We do it sometimes by trying to manipulate the other to my position, right? Trying to win them to my position. Sometimes we defend our own position with real intensity because I've got to prove it's right. And a lot of times I sit with people who are defending their position, and it's not because they care so much about their position. It's they really do feel like if we're not on the same ground, we're going to be divided. We have to be the same on this if we're going to have connection with one another. Uh, we will defend. Sometimes we'll get angry. I'll actually demand the other come to my position, right? Sometimes we'll distance. I'll just send the message to you, you can't be with me unless you agree with me. We have to be the same if you want relationship with me. Um, sometimes we comply. We pretend we're the same, even though we're not the same, right? We hide difference just so that I can stay connected to you. Again, neither of those are really a very rich connection. Their connection that says sameness is required and is simply not. When it comes to racial difference, uh, one of the examples of this kind of demanding sameness is what's often referred to as color blindness. Color blindness just means, and again, I think it comes from a good place a lot of times. It means I'm going to send the message, I don't even notice differences in race. I, I don't see race at all. So we can now be connected around sameness. I recently saw a TED talk by a former professor of mine, Dr. Caprice Hollins, and she said this about colorblindness. The moment you let a person of color know that you don't notice their race, you're actually letting them know you notice their race. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you went a white, white person and said to them, I just, sorry, I'm reading back there. I should be reading down here. <laughs> I just want you to know I don't see color. She goes on to say, I believe colorblind thinking comes from a good place. When I hear it, I think white people are trying to tell me they are not racist. They won't treat me unfairly because of my race. They won't judge me unfairly because of our differences. But what I want to know is, why does an important part of me have to go away in order for you to do these things? To accept me, connect to me, value me, want me to be a part with you, why do I have to hide part of who I am? Those things that are different, if we're going to connect. And I think that's our opportunity as the church. I think it's one of the ways we proclaim that Christ is with us and in us, that this is his community. Our opportunity is to say, you know what? That connection with God is so vital, so core to who we are. We are literally new creatures in Christ. Our minds have been changed. We are unified in that in a way that nothing can divide. That we actually can now have those differences. They don't have to be so threatening. Those differences we don't have to hide, run from, demand they go away. We get to be people different in many ways because that that unites us is so incredibly powerful and so incredibly important. And when we do that, I think we proclaim to the world there's something different going on here. Another thing I would say I think is helpful in kind of moving towards unity with diversity is invite meaningful influence. You know, for decades, the church has been trying to be more multicultural. Many have kind of heard this, seen 
in Revelation what the church will one day be and try to move towards it today. And a lot of those efforts have failed miserably. I've talked with many who have tried to do that and the efforts have failed miserably. It is hard to, to be multicultural as a church. Uh, in many ways, our societies are divided and it's just easier to stay that way. If we move towards it, one of the things that a lot of people who have researched these things seem to agree on is that part of the problem, part of the difference between those who have kind of succeeded at it and those who haven't, is those who succeed at being more multicultural willing to give away some influence. Because a lot of times what we're doing is we're saying, I would love for you to come in and join us. Don't affect us, don't change us, don't ask us to surrender anything that we are comfortable with and that we now do. Just join us. Again, be guests in our house. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to invite people in who are our family. This is their home as much as it's our home, which means they'll have influence, which means we will be different. We will become an us that is not the same as either of us would be without the other, right? If we're gonna be multicultural, we're gonna to have to move together in an us way. Again, we understand that as a couple, right? The oneness of marriage, we get it. We don't get to just have the way we always were. If we come together and become one, there's something new, something that's us. Same is true of a church. If we're going to move ahead people with difference, then we're gonna to have to invite people to have influence which does mean sometimes we're gonna to have to do things that aren't as comfortable for us. You know, one of the places you very often see that's regarding music, right? Music, a lot of people, I've, I've been around church a lot of time where there's people, I've been in this church all my life, we've done worship this way. I would love all of you people who aren't of this age, who haven't been here all the time to join us. I do not want you to change the music, right? I want to keep it the way it is. But I've equally been around young people who say, I don't want you to change the music, right? We all have our way we're comfortable with and we love to invite others into relationship. As long as it doesn't mean I have to give up anything I'm comfortable with. If we're gonna be one, it means we're gonna to have to give up some things we're comfortable with. We're gonna to have to surrender some things so others truly can be part of the family with us. And again, I just want to remind you, I think that's for the common good. I think we, again, think sometimes we're doing this and we're just, it's just the right nice thing to do. It's actually good for all of us. I used to oversee missions in a previous church and um, one of the things I thought about often is we would send mission teams and one of the things I learned over the years as we were supporting missionaries was that a lot of times we approach it with this thought of, you know, we. We as a Western church, we have a lot of material resources, we have a lot of educational resources, we have a lot of Bible training, and we are going to give to the other wonderful things that will bless them and benefit them. Uh, we have a lot to give, and mission teams sometimes can go with that mentality. We are going to bless you with the wonderful resources we have. But if we're going to truly bless the other, we're gonna to have to own the fact they have something to offer us they actually get to bless us. Because honestly, we both benefit when we get to be a blessing to each other. A friend of mine, Dr. David Mensa, is a Ghanaian man who has started a, a mission in Northern Ghana that has literally transformed Northern Ghana. It's one of the poorest parts of that country. Uh, he went back home. 
there to establish a mission and to do a good work there. He's built a first-class hospital in northern Ghana, a place with very little medical care. Um, he has literally changed infant mortality rates in Ghana. I mean, dramatically have changed them by the projects that they run there. They have created remarkable work opportunities for single moms uh, in Ghana. Hundreds and hundreds of single moms who now make a, a living to care for their family uh, through the opportunities agriculturally, fisheries, and other things they've started in northern Ghana. They've planted over 40 churches, and they have continually trained the pastors of those churches. When I first went to Ghana to visit David, um, I got to admit, I went with kind of that idea, I'm going to bring some good stuff to Ghana. We're going to bless those people in Ghana and that good work that they're doing. I quickly learned when I was there, I may have had material resources to share with them. They had resources to share with me that I desperately needed. I don't know any place where I have been more spiritually blessed than to be with David and the people that he works with in Ghana, where they have poured into me the spiritual resources that they had an abundance of, poured it into me, and it was life-changing for me, and life-changing for many of the people with us. When we approach one another where there's difference, and we say, you know what? Difference is hard, but part of why we work through this, if this is God's design, if we are all people who are in Christ and empowered by him and called for a purpose by him, we all have something to share with one another. We truly are all better when we embrace that, when we move together with it. And that leads to the last thing I'll say, is I think that if we want unity with diversity, then we move together with purpose. Uh, we move together in a way that's about more than just us, right? When we remember that we are together for the sake of God's glory. We are together to proclaim the gospel. We are together to build his church into the church he wants it to be. When we join together to move on purpose towards the thing God calls us to, and when we join together to actually worship in a way that is according to the design and pleases the one that we are worshiping, we will be unified. Suddenly those differences between us become less important, right? Because we remember what we're all about, what we share in common. I think diversity really can be our strength. It really can be. It's hard. It's hard work. It's hard to know even how to move towards it. I simply want to drive home today. It's possible. It's God's good design for all of us. We benefit ourselves when we move towards it. Um, and it's worth the effort because it is one of the ways we proclaim to the world. Jesus Christ is with us. He is in us. This is his home, his community. We are all blessed to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, that you're not only a God who has designed us not to be alone, but you so wonderfully provide for those needs. Uh, we're not alone because you are always with us. Um, your eye is always on us. You are always caring for us. Uh, every time we reach out, we will find you are there. We are truly not alone. But God, we're also not alone because you've provided us opportunities, ways to, to be more connected to others like us. Father, I pray that we would embrace those things, that we would um, face the challenges that that brings. Father, that we really would be one people um, who are gathered together because of you and for you. 
pray you'd help us as a church to, to learn how we can do that in this place, uh, how we do that well, how we embrace all those differences that our world tells us should divide and say, not us, not us because, because this is your body and you've designed it this way. In your blessed name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.